As a foundation for our practice here together, we've been inviting and encouraging the giving of attention to the body, the conscious inhabiting of our bodies, being present with the experience of what it means to have a body. And hopefully, in the course of all that, we've noticed that, yes, we have one. Sometimes we can not be entirely in touch with that simple reality. And the nature and experience of having a body is very much that it's happening right here. It's always happening right here. Paying attention to it brings us into contact with something that is immediate and real. And so we encourage that practice. We engage in this together and we start to perhaps see experience, understand our bodies as having a lot to offer us in our learning, in our journey of awakening. The Buddha spoke of the body as the first foundation of mindfulness, the first framework which we need to give attention to, to come to understand, as a foundation for this path and journey of liberation, of awakening, of peace and freedom. And together with the body as the first foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha also spoke about paying attention to the the feeling tone of experience, the pleasant and unpleasant and neutral tones that we experience within all phenomena and things that arise for us which is the second foundation, paying attention also to the, the quality and condition of our consciousness, of our mind, we could say. It's the third foundation of mindfulness. And equally, paying attention to what's going on inside our minds, what's actually happening in that realm. And we'll speak more about these elements of the, the practice. But coming back to this area of body, this experience, this phenomena, this, in a way, obvious, it's kind of going on, it's been with us all along. We don't necessarily imagine we need to give it a lot of attention because, you know, it seems to be doing its thing. But what we notice is as we start to give it attention, as we start to turn towards start to feel more directly, more immediately the aliveness, the vitality, the sense of presence and whatever's going on-ness in our body. That we, we see that the, the experience of coming into contact with the body more directly, the feelings, the sensations, the vibrations of body, is significantly different than the more familiar and habitual way we have of relating to our body through images, through ideas. That is really actually a relationship we have with our mind and the content of our mind, where the images and the ideas about our body arise. Relationship with our body is something rather different. 
And it's something we feel, something we sense, something that affects us in so many ways. And in this engagement with the reality of the body, with the experience of the body, there is also, however, a useful and important element of contemplating, of reflecting upon what is it that we call body? What is it that goes on here in this experience? In the Dharma teachings, one of the aspects of the body that we're asked to contemplate, to reflect on, to look at again and again, is the, the, the reality that this body is subject to a process, a journey from birth through aging, sickness and to death. And I think Leela spoke about this a little last night or possibly this morning. It's a, it's a theme we come back to again and again. That we know this is true at some level, and yet at another level we don't really want to take it on fully. We'd really kind of like to keep it in the, in the realm of ideas rather than something we embody as an understanding about this life. What does it mean to truly accept the journey of our bodies? To not struggle with or resist the fact that they do, slowly sometimes not as slowly as we wish, break down, lose functionality, become slightly less sort of fun to play with than they used to be. Sometimes they start to feel like actually a lot of hard work. And not because something's gone wrong in an ultimate sense, but because this is what happens with bodies, all bodies, on different timescales perhaps. But in the end, you know, I don't know if you've been into the walking room and had an opportunity to notice the skeleton sitting cross-legged in the, uh, in the bay window amongst the plants and just contemplate that, you know, this body will end up like that. Maybe not quite sitting there in Gaia House, But um, in that sense of one day it will be bones. And somewhere before it gets to that point, it's probably going to be a bit tricky for us with what goes on. Really. Now, plenty of us don't need to uh, wait to encounter that part of the experience because it's been part of our lives already. And yet to contemplate this, to really give some space for considering, yes, this is what happens. It's not a mistake. It's not because we did it wrong. Got the wrong sort of body. Should have got one of those plastic ones that'll last forever. It wouldn't really have done the job for us. But what comes up for many, maybe all of us at times, when we contemplate this, we realize there's some degree of fear or some degree of kind of anxiety can arise around the reality of having a body that is vulnerable. And that isn't forever. And the way we experience that that fear, it's useful to reflect on what's going on. We kind of feel threatened by difficult experiences in many different ways. But the fear itself and the very deep roots of that fear come from the, the urge, the imperative to preserve and to protect this body. 
the survival of our body and the survival of our community and our species. Something wired very deeply into the very cells and tissues of our body and the very neural pathways and sort of the systems of organizing and operating the body and the the hormones, the endocrine systems. and All this is deeply entrenched, this urge to preserve, to protect. And in the face of a reality in which ultimately we will fail to be able to ultimately and forever preserve and protect this body. So it's, it's quite something to contemplate, to really stop with that a moment. And what we see is that this urge to preserve and to protect, of course there's something appropriate about it, to care for, to respect, to look after this, this soft and precious thing, this, this organic life we, we're given for this time. But the way it plays out for us is so much of the way that we unconsciously express that urge to take care of is through contraction, tightening, closing down. And it generates a degree of tension and an experience of disconnection that's profoundly distressing, that's really deeply painful for us. And what we're doing is something that, you know, it goes on all around. The animal kingdom is full of examples and expressions of, of what happens in this way. I sometimes find it useful to contemplate that because we can often, I think in our human uh, sort of confidence and sometimes arrogance, you know, imagine ourselves you know, well removed and further evolved than the, the various creatures running and swimming and flying around the planet. And in lots of ways we are, and in some ways we're not really at all much beyond all of that. And, uh, you know, there's that expression, I don't know if it's commonly used in this country, to play possum. Do you, do you use that? It certainly occurs commonly in America where it originates and in other countries. Um, and it refers to the American opossum, which is a creature which, when threatened, it's a sort of a, I don't know, something a bit bigger than a squirrel, I guess, um, that when threatened and caught out of a tree, it just rolls over and pretends to be dead. Because most of the things that eat it don't eat dead food. They want to eat live food. So it just pretends to be dead, hoping that the, uh, the bear or the wolf or whatever will become disinterested. And it's a kind of interesting strategy. It's like you just shut down. Do you notice what it's like sometimes when we get afraid and we go, and we freeze? It's almost like we're trying to give the message to something or someone that there's nothing going on here by stopping completely. It's a little bit like playing possum. It doesn't really work that well for the possum because sometimes, you know, when it's lying there pretending to be dead, whatever comes over, hmm, smells good. And, you know, it's in trouble, obviously, at that point. Likewise for ourselves, that tendency to contract, tighten, where we kind of, it's almost like shutting down the experience It's not that we just do it when something's happening that's dangerous. We get into a pattern and a habit of unconsciously continuing and sustaining that contraction. And we feel it as this tension in the body. 
Or an, another, another creature which they, um, it can be found certainly, I think, around different countries of the Pacific, including New Zealand, where I come from, and maybe other parts of the world, <clears throat> other parts of the world beyond the Pacific as well. Something called the pufferfish. It's actually a bit of a delicacy in Japan, I believe, as a creature. But its um, way of defending itself is to puff itself up, and it's got these quite um, sharp spines, which are also poisonous. But the, the main point about it is that it makes itself look a lot bigger by puffing itself up. And so when something's coming along, and it thinks this, this is about my sort of a meal for me size sort of thing, which is basically how it works in the animal kingdom. The really big things don't eat the really little things. They eat the things just about one size down, mostly. That's how it works. Um, you know? And so it puffs itself up, and the thing that thought this wasn't too, you know, this was a handleable meal size portion, suddenly thinks, oh, that looks a bit big for me to take on. And it scares, hopefully, or dissuades the uh, predator from eating it. You've probably seen a cat come in from a sort of a some kind of a fright or entanglement outside, and it's all all the fur stands up like that. You notice that experience? See that? And it's like they look bigger, so they try and scare the other one off by looking bigger than the other one. And whenever we get afraid and feel the tingling on the back of our neck, it's our system trying to do the same thing, trying to get bigger. Trying to scare off the thing that's scaring us. It's like these these patterns are really strong in us. And we feel them. We feel the way in which they impact us. So we sometimes, in recognizing that and understanding that, there can be the sense of seeing it doesn't actually help to react in those ways of contraction. We were speaking about that some in one of the groups today. The, the tendency we have when we notice contraction to think, I shouldn't be contracting. And it's almost like we squeeze the thing that's contracting with our judgment or resistance to it. And it's like, you know, can you see, this is getting really tight, so I squeeze it to stop it getting tight. doesn't really make sense, does it? But that's our habitual response. We contract even around the contractions. And sometimes what we encounter as we start to practice is like layers of contraction around contractions around experience. So we can start to think this is somehow something to reject or to judge, to blame. We can feel like I shouldn't be doing this. It's a bad thing to do. And it's important to really be able to understand, to discern the the underlying inclination is to protect us, to actually see what might be harmful, and to protect us against it. That that quality of aversion is in the service of that. Or what, it, what it arises from the capacity to discern and respond to threats is actually in the service of our well-being. But it becomes habitual, unconscious and locked into patterns of reactivity that don't serve us. It comes out of caring. Interestingly, all forms of aversion, fear, anxiety, anger, they all come because we care. If we didn't care, we wouldn't be afraid. If we didn't care, we wouldn't be angry. And we're not saying here that the way to resolve these is to stop caring. Of course, caring is something essential in the very, at the very heart of what we're doing. But we need to... 
learn to free that urge or that 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 really um, core concern and caring from the ways in which we've learnt to unskillfully attempt to enact it. Does that make sense, what I'm saying there? There's the caring, then there's the way we try and care, which is often through reactivity, that doesn't actually bring about what the caring was looking for in the first place, which is that we actually preserve and promote the well-being of ourselves and those around us. What actually happens is there's a, there's a way in which we get lost in a pattern of reactivity, of suffering. And it's like we're, we're taken away from where we are into the future by fear. The reality of pain and vulnerability leads to the experience of fear, the anticipation of that which may be difficult for us. And a lot of that plays out in the body. You know, we're sitting in meditation and there's a twinge in our knee, and it's actually okay, you know, we can be with it. It's a little uncomfortable, but, you know, we're there, and it's still there a few minutes later, and we think, oh, it'll be all right. And then a few minutes later, we start to think, it hasn't gone away. Maybe it's getting stronger. And, you know, within moments, we're starting to imagine, you know, the, the um, ambulance arriving at Gaia House. We're being stretched out, and, you know, it's going to be a, you know, a potential amputation case. <laughs> and the mind just moves in a, just a few moments. It's so fast. To this... Horrific scenario. And actually what was happening is just some unpleasant sensations in our knee. Now, of course, sometimes we might accurately recognise that the pressure that is being generated by the posture or something else needs some relief and we might make an adjustment to the posture when there's pain in the body. Other times we might recognise that it's okay, we can relax, we can stay with it. It's okay to just be with, to bear with the difficult experience. But the way we get taken out of where we are into the, the stories of the future, the, the, the fear is so quick. I, I remember for myself when I was um, travelling in Asia having a very strong and visceral experience of this. I, I woke up one morning and I couldn't move. I was ill in some way which I couldn't recognise but I couldn't move. I couldn't actually make even a sound. Uh, like no energy. It was a very shocking thing to realise that I could still be alive and yet have so little energy that I couldn't do anything. And uh, long before the days of mobile phones and such things, it took me half the morning just to manage to tip myself off the bed and crawl, slide, I'm not quite sure how I did it, to the door and get someone's attention. And they eventually got me to hospital. And the doctors, after any number of tests, came back and said, well, we're not sure what you've got. It looks like it could be hepatitis, and a, or it might be malaria, or it could be both. And my mind just went, I'm dead. Not, my, not just my mind, my whole body went with it. It was like, ah, this is it. That's gone. This is going to be the death of me. And that kind of movement into terror, basically, visceral terror for the loss of my existence, And of course, I was really sick. It turned out to be hepatitis A. You know, the, the least of the versions of hepatitis one could get, but enough to knock me out for six months. Um, and it wasn't actually that bad, the whole thing. I mean, it was scary and difficult and 
would have been nice if somebody else in the world that knew me knew where I was, but that's how it was. And, and yet that sense of how quickly we, we go to fear. And the fear takes us away from where we are. Mark Twain once observed, he said, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. <laughs> but being, you know, that projecting ourselves out of where we are into the future becomes the worst experience of our life because we lose contact. We lose touch with where we are. And the, the nature and movement of fear is such that we need to remember that it's always happening right here. Fear is an experience happening here and now, always. But it tends to generate in our mind a story about the future. If we don't recognize what's happening, we end up, as it were, in the future, which doesn't actually exist, which is part of why we can't deal with it, and it's terrifying, because it's not there. It's a fabrication. And we lose contact with what's happening here, which might be some really quite strong or intense sensations. But we're asked to come back in and actually, with regard to what's happening in the next moment, let alone tomorrow or next week, we do not know. We don't know what's going to happen. We can't know. We never know. Sometimes we kid ourselves that we know and make ourselves feel a bit better about that. But when we can't sustain that, fantasy, sometimes then we really feel the impact of the fear. And so what's important is to really come into our body, to feel, to get to know, to begin to make friends with the experience. Because the intensity and charge, it's concerned with saving our life, even if we're not in danger. And something in us doesn't quite know that. The intensity and the charge has got all of the, that energy of the existence of our very species behind it, in a way. The continuity of, our, of life on earth, in a sense, is behind that urge and the power of it. So it's not surprising it overwhelms us sometimes. But if we can actually get to know it, come to understand it, then we don't need to leave the experience searching for some way to make sure that what we're afraid of doesn't happen. Because that's what happens with the fear. We're trying to make sure that what we're afraid of doesn't happen in the belief that if I can do that, I will no longer have to have this experience of fear. And I can't stand or don't want to have to experience this. But if we can come to recognize, and the truth is we can handle this, or we can hold this experience. We certainly can survive it because we already are surviving it. It's already happening and we're surviving. If we come into contact directly with it, it's like, oh, I'm here. This is how it is. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. But I'm still here. And with that starts to come a degree of sensitivity that is remarkable and precious and that we actually need to find again because it is that sensitivity that's what's important for us in this slightly more energized, aroused or engaged condition that the, the concern 
brings us to, in, in the face of danger, in the face of threat, we actually need to be alert. We need to pay attention, to take care. But in contact with where we are. And uh, another story in, in this realm, that um, something that happened when I was uh, walking one uh, time in the mountains in New Zealand and doing a sort of a winter crossing of an alpine route in the South Island, where due to the, the risk of avalanches in a certain place, you had to cross a frozen lake uh, in order to f- make a safe passage through this particular section. And uh, we were walking out, myself and two companions, out across this lake. And we began, and I was, for some reason I guess, the, the one in the front, just every step, just checking the ice. Is it strong enough for the ice axe? You know, just sticking it in really firm, it's okay, take another step. Another prod with the axe, another step, it's okay. But then after about 50 yards, it's like, this is pretty solid ice, looks pretty thick, and starting to get a bit casual. So every second step, and then maybe every third step. 100 yards out into the lake, I went through the surface. I hadn't checked that spot. I checked the one before. I went through the ice. Fortunately, I caught myself here with my ice axe in my arm on enough ice to not actually go all the way through. But my feet were sort of dangling in probably a thousand foot of water, like cold water. And I had a pretty heavy backpack on. I was obviously, you know, there's a certain amount of fear. Um, but I hadn't gone through. The ice around me seemed quite solid. So I said you know, to my friend, just, just stay back a moment. And I managed to just leave myself out. It was like, amazing. How, did that, how could that be? And then we, had, we were about halfway out on the lake by then, so there was no point going back. Since it was pretty much the same distance, we decided to keep going. But I tell you, I checked every step with my ice axe, and I'd never done walking meditation in my life. But every step, there was a degree of mindfulness and attention to the feeling of the foot going into that first soft layer on the ice in which it would sink in for about an inch or two, five centimetres. Just go in, my heart would go, every step, and then it was solid. took my weight, and I walked, and we walked, all of us, off. Trying to, we couldn't figure out what had happened. Eventually we understood, we're looking at a map, seeing that there was a stream running in to the lake, 100 yards away. At that point it was running in and the current was strong enough that it was cutting a, like a fissure in the ice. And it was just a narrow little line of thin ice. And I found it. <laughs> we could have easily walked across the lake and not known it was there. But something about the quality of attention in that kind of experience, for anyone who's been in a situation like that, you realise that you have no interest in paying attention to anything else. You know, distracting thoughts, interesting fantasies, they don't get a look in when, you, when it really is about your safety and well-being. When that's not just a kind of a fantasy there. And so... There's a way in which we're asked to pay attention, not as if we're about to fall through the ice, because that's not going to happen, at least not around here. But as if we were really wanting to feel and know what's happening, because it might be important for us to know. 
just as it certainly was in that situation, important for me to know exactly what was happening with each step. What we start to see, what becomes apparent if we really pay attention to our body, is that this bodily experience is not in our control. It's not the way we want it to be. And we can experience great pleasure in this body, but equally incredible pain. And it's kind of confusing and problematic because we'd really like to have lots more of that pleasure, but we do not want to have any of that pain. At least most people, that's how it is. And yet we can't control how much we get of this or that. We can spend a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to get more pleasure and less pain. But I don't know anyone that's worked out the secret for doing that perfectly. If they did, I'm sure they'd sell a lot of books. But it's not really possible, is it? And so there's a way in which we distrust our our body. It's kind of tragic, in fact. But we tend to distrust the body from our intellectual orientation, from the mind, the way we look at our body. We distrust it because it's not in our control. Because we've tried and failed to get it to be or to feel the way we want it to be or the way we want it to feel. We can't do it. Sitting in meditation, we might think we'd like to have some calm, peaceful, blissful, you know, lovely experience. And who knows, maybe some of us might now and then. It does happen, apparently. But it's not guaranteed. And when it does happen, it doesn't last. And that's really not what we're about here. But because we can't control the experience, the tendency is to leave the body, to try and be somewhere where we think we can find control in the thinking mind, in the activity of the mind, and all the judging, evaluating, comparing, examining of the past and imagining of the future is all about trying to somehow create a sense of safety, control and certainty in which we can not have to be concerned about our well-being. It doesn't actually work, we know that. But nonetheless, it's compelling, it seems. And if we check in with what's it like in my body, this is what we've been doing quite a lot these last couple of days, what's it like in my body when I'm in my head, when I'm in that thinking and reacting? What's it like in here? It's actually really painful. It's really uncomfortable. It's like we come into our body and we encounter things to which our response is, get me out of here. You recognize this experience? It's like, get me out of here. I don't want to inhabit this. So it's not then that surprising that we find ourselves so lost in our minds. That at some level we're ambivalent about really being in the body. About really being here. Because here, it's kind of scary. It's not in control. And yet... What we also start to notice as we pay attention, as we practice, as we keep coming back into contact with the body. So we keep allowing ourselves to feel it, to sense it, to know it. There's a, a way in which it starts to open, or there's a way in which we start to feel more present in it, connected to it, in which it softens, in which it actually becomes pleasurable. It's really interesting. As we become more able to inhabit the body, the body becomes a more inviting place to abide. And there's a way in which we 
you start to soften into this immediacy of life, of bodily experience, that can be, re- it can be a very deeply healing thing for us. To know what it is to inhabit our body at ease. To remember. And interesting, remember. It's like you know, putting the limbs back on something that's had its limbs removed from. As opposed to dismember. When we talk about forget. Forgetting is like dismembering. Things get taken apart. To remember, to bring back together this quality of presence, of mindfulness, of awareness, and this bodily life. To bring them back together. And so we learn to listen to the body. We learn to take care of what's arising within it. This quality we've spoken of, of bringing kind attention to the experience of the body means bringing kind attention also to the places that are painful. And to see what does that mean for us. Sometimes what's really helpful, we notice there's an area of pain or discomfort, to notice that tendency of contraction and see if we can just breathe with it. Breathe. It's like the sense of out-breath. We've talked about how the quality of breath can be felt through the body. Directing with our intention that quality of outbreath into the area of discomfort or pain just invites a softening and an opening. It's not about making the experience go away, but about giving it space. Sometimes when something's really intense, rather than going into it and trying to feel the most intense element of the experience, what we need to do is just back off and kind of be close to it. Not on top of it, not inside it, but just nearby, as if it was something hot. And if we'd grab it, we'd get burnt and go, ouch, and drop it. That's sometimes what happens with painful experience. We try and kind of get all over it or into it. Figure it out. We've got an agenda. I want to fix it, sort it, understand it. You know, be nice enough to it so it goes away. Yeah? And all of that, of course, comes at some degree out of some unwillingness to really have the experience or let it be there. So going more gently, feeling into, giving space. Sometimes when there's the capacity, we can really let ourselves touch and feel the elemental qualities of it. Of, of heat and pressure, essentially. Intensifications of heat and pressure are mostly what we experience as pain. And just seeing that, oh, actually it's just that particular fire element or the earth element of pressure. That has come strong. And to really reflect on what it, what's it doing? What's, why, 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 why did someone wire it up this way that it does this? You know, what didn't happen by accident? If it's really just unpleasant and miserable, surely we'd have evolved our way beyond it by now. But no, it's here for a reason, and a very good reason. And one of my... Uh, times of travelling in Asia, I had the good fortune to work in a leprosy clinic in Calcutta with uh, street people, people who lived on the streets, very poor, uneducated, lived in filthy conditions with very little food, almost no medicines, except probably what they got from the street clinic in terms of medicine. And there was a lot of um, people who came as volunteers to, to work and to treat the people and to help, and others who were quite unskilled like myself were just sort of 
helping the people who were helping. Um, and that. But one of the things I discovered from one of the, uh, the medically trained people there, which shocked me completely, and why I, I just didn't expect that we had there were a number of leprosy um, sufferers there um, who would have their, their wounds treated and uh, that. And I, I kind of always had this idea that leprosy was some horrible disease that makes you know bits fall off. And what I discovered there was that's not true at all. Leprosy is a disease that kills the nervous tissue so that you can't feel when you've cut yourself or you've burnt yourself and it's got infected and it's swelling up and the tissue is rotting and you don't know it's happening. And if you're uneducated and poor and living in really unclean situations, unsanitary environments, this is what happens to you. And for a leper, this is what shocked me, the thing that would make the most difference to their life would be to be able to feel pain. Because pain says, and it says very clearly and unambiguously, pay attention here. Now, because it hurts, we don't mostly want to. But that's what it says. And in paying attention here, we have the opportunity to check out, is there something that needs to be done? Sometimes there is. We need to make some adjustment to the posture, or we need to, you know, remove our hand from the flame that it's accidentally strayed into and we think, oh yeah. We don't just go, oh sensations, warm, heat, 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 noticing, mindful, present. No, we go, ouch! And that's wise and compassionate to do that. Although there might be an occasion where we've put it in there and we can say, yeah, it's burning, it's hot, but actually we're taking someone else's hand who's in the flame and we're helping them out. And for that we might leave it there a little longer. So we actually have a choice we sometimes make in how we handle those sensations. But we need to be there for them. We need to include them. And they are part of what opens us up here. Khalil Gibran and the prophet, he, he wrote, Pain is the shell that encloses your understanding. And just as the stone of a fruit must break so that its heart may stand in the sun, so too must you know pain. There's something we start to understand when we allow ourselves to be touched. It's not like we're doing it because it's fun, you know. But there's something we understand when we allow ourselves to be touched. When we're avoiding, when we're mostly avoiding pain. And I'm talking equally in a way about processes of emotion, and experience of emotional pain as physical pain here. But, but the examples are... I'm, more initially focusing here with the body, what happens is when we try and avoid, we actually desensitize ourselves. We become numb and disconnected. And the loss of connection is actually the deeper suffering. The loss of that sensitivity is felt keenly at the very core of our being in a way in which 
we are then driven to look for some kind of meaning, satisfaction or stimulation in so many surface things that are empty of giving us that, that can't and don't have the capacity to give us the satisfaction that we seek from a sense of deep connection. But to be connected, we need to be willing to include whatever is here. We can't just pick and choose. And this is kind of one of the things we have to learn here. We can't just push away one part of our experience. If we push away our, any part of our experience, we ultimately push away all of our experience. And it's as if, in fact, as if we were pushing away the world. And the world's a lot bigger than we are. So what actually happens is the world doesn't go very far at all, but we get kind of pushed out of relationship we lose connection with the world, our life, our experience in that movement. And so this process isn't just about feeling and getting to know or be with, although that's part of it. It's about, again, this remembering, this reconnecting, this rediscovering of something fundamentally not separated and not separate at the core and at the heart of our experience and our life. So that when we're being with an experience that's uncomfortable or difficult, it's not to make it go away. We sometimes think, I've got to learn how to be relaxed and sort of breathe the right way and if I can just get it right, then it'll all get, you know, sort of comfortable. But it doesn't work like that. In fact, that doesn't work even if we could do it. As Ramdas once observed, you know, he said, you can't be with something in order for it to go away because it knows. And it's true, it does, because it isn't something separate to what we are. When we're trying to be with something to make it go away, we're treating it as something separate from what we are. Now, it's not to say that we're therefore defining ourselves by what's going on as the experience, but nor are we separate from it. And really the test in this, not that we're testing ourselves or anyone, but the, in a way the measure of the process is that it's okay for it to be here and it's okay for it to go. When that is our relationship to the experience, we've come into balance with it. We've come into a state of openness, of letting it come if it comes, and be willing to let it go if it goes. And that place, that condition, is something that has so much to offer us. So much to offer us. So we talk about heartfulness, not just mindfulness, but heartfulness. A way in which the quality of presence is infused with this caring. And we're asked to learn what it means to forgive ourselves. To forgive our body for the pain that we experience in and through it. Perhaps we also need to ask our bodies to forgive us for our unwillingness to meet the experiences that arise within them or our hesitation. Not judging ourselves for those limitations but just understanding that 
there's a deeper pain in the unforgiving and the non-forgiveness of our body the unwillingness to really to really be touched by the truth of what it is and how it is so we can also in that sense of forgiving it's like have a sense of holding something precious and tender because this body is precious and tender and that's why we care so much about it that's why we need to give it attention and as we come into that qualitatively different relationship to our body again it has more to reveal more to show more to offer us The way we relate to our body tends to be the same as the way we relate to our lives. So we can learn about our life through our body. And the nature of our body, of course, is an expression of the nature of our life. We see the tendency to relate to the body as if it's mine, my body, my body that's doing well or my body that's not doing well. We have those thoughts. And yet if we really just take a few moments to contemplate it, what's going on here? You know? We think of the body as ours, but actually, we're not the only person, we're not the only being living here. Won't be any one human being in this body, hopefully. But as far as sentient beings, creatures, things that are alive... There are millions, in fact billions, of other life forms going on in the same space of organic tissue. We don't normally like to think about that. It's a little bit, sounds a bit unhygienic. You know, certainly a little bit embarrassing. Certainly also at times annoying. And yet the truth is it's a co-housing project. (laughs) You know, I've had this very interesting process, I often find myself speaking about on retreat, of sort of coming into an acceptance of some of my flatmates, the particular ones that live between my toes and are in the same family as mushrooms, although a lot smaller. You know, and they've been there since I was a teenager. I spent a lot of years hating the fact that they were eating the bits in between my toes, and I couldn't stop them, no matter what I did. And at some point I realised, yeah, we're in this together, and actually those guys are going to be here probably after I'm gone. <laughs> So I better give them a bit of respect. You know, it's like, this is how it is. We get to use this body for a while. But when we see it in that spirit, actually, it's not forever. There's much more gratitude for the fact that actually some of it works at least some of the time. There's not so much the expectation or demand that it should all work all of the time. And the truth is, as the years go on, that gets less and less likely. And we see that. And rather than thinking, oh no, that's not okay, that shouldn't be, it's like, that's how it is. And we might have a sense that we can hold it a bit more lightly, a bit more softly, a bit more with openness. Oh, oh, this body, well, you know, it's maybe not just for me. Maybe it's not just for me. A story that I also really enjoy sharing of of a Zen monk who lived in the 16th 
century, Rio Khan, 16th, 17th century, who's a, a, a beautiful, wonderful poet and just a, I find myself very inspired and touched by his life. And um, he was once observed on a cold winter's morning after a heavy frost to be taking the lice out of his robe and putting them on a rock in the sun to warm themselves. And it was just like, just very sensitive and careful with these little creatures, putting them on the rock in the sun. And even more amazingly, observed towards the end of the day before the sun went down, picking them up and putting them back in his robe. And you just wonder, wow, what, you know, he obviously understood something about life that he was really willing to share what he had, not just some food from his plate. Yeah? I'm not saying we need to do that. But do you sense how it might be different if we were related to our body in that spirit of something that's here, not just for me? And the sense of the openness and actually a certain kind of joy that comes even with hearing from the fact that someone could be so remarkable and possibly crazy to do that. And there's something uplifting about it, isn't there? And what is that? Because we we kind of know in some way there's something true that it's expressing. Something true in what that's suggesting. And you know, we can so we we can ask these questions, you know, what what's what's actually going on here? If we just step a little away from our habitual way of conceiving the body, what's this going on? You know, it's a hollow tube. Basically, from a biological point of view, it's a really long tube. You know, most of it's coiled up inside our belly, but essentially, it's a, a, a moderately evolved version of you know what starts off as a worm. You know, there's a hole at one end, the food goes in here, it goes down this long tube, and then a bit of it comes out the other end, and along the way, it becomes this. And you know, it's this long tube and some appendages attached to it, which are mostly involved with getting food. Figuring out where the food is, getting away from something else that wants us to be their food, just running away, and, and figuring out with this bit which things are food and which things think we're food. And that's the primary operating system. You know, there's a lot of other fancy stuff that goes on, and it's remarkable what we can do these days, you know, jumbo jets, iPads, all of that. But the basic bottom line is that's what's going on. And there's a couple of extra tubes as well for other functions, making more tubes and, you know, all of that. <laughs> but that's it. In the end, if we come down to it. And, you know, where's the inside and the outside in this thing? You know, if we say, I'm in here, do we, who, what's, what's in here mean? Because actually the most inside bit in, in here is the bit of what's inside the tube. And that starts off on our plate at about, you know, 530 it looks quite good while it's on the plate, then within a few seconds it tastes good, but it's not going to look so good. And then, you know, when it's in here, that's what's on the inside. And it's certainly not me when it comes through on the other end. That's pretty clear. And yet somehow we think, I'm in here. How could I be in here? What is it that's going on in here? There's space in here, there's air in here, there's water in here. There's lots going on in here, for sure. 
And in a way, of course, yeah, it's not like we're somewhere else. But what is it we say, when we say casually, it's my body? You know, that suggests it should do what I tell it to. Don't know about yours, but mine doesn't. So it's our body, and I'm with the body for sure. But so much of what it does, it does by itself. And it's teaching us about the nature of life when we reflect on this, when we contemplate it, when we see just the very sensations, the ripple and flow of experience, pleasant, unpleasant or otherwise. All of that's just happening, the breathing that comes and goes. You know, it's really remarkable, isn't it? That it just happens even when we're not paying attention to it. You know? We're not needed for the breathing to happen. We can completely space out and the breath keeps coming and going. It's really fortunate, isn't it? We'd probably be, well, if it wasn't that way, we'd have probably all been dead. You know, within three minutes of spacing out, we'd be gone if we stopped breathing. But of course, if that was the case, we'd have all learnt to be really mindful of the breath. It'd be the first thing you get trained in when you get born. Okay, pay attention to the breath. Make sure you breathe in and then breathe out. And as Tofu Roshi once said, the great Zen master, he said, uh, it's really important to make sure you have the same number of in-breaths as out-breaths. Otherwise, it gets really complicated. So if you're ever feeling a little bit bored by what's going on with that breath coming in and out, despite the fact that it's keeping you alive, just check to make sure there's the same number of in-breaths and out-breaths. It's really helpful. So it started with an in-breath. It'll finish on an out-breath. It will always be balanced. But it's good to keep an eye on it. And of course, digestion, the process. You know, We put food in it and it generates energy and tissue. And it doesn't always put the tissue exactly where we want it, you know. It grows here somewhere where I don't want it and not where I do want it. Or, you know, but shows up here and I'd rather it showed up there, you know. That all happens just by itself. Keeping the temperature balanced, homeostasis, circulation, all of that. It's like there's this incredible intelligence playing out in our body. It's incredible intelligence. Unfolding in front of our eyes, literally. And we just kind of so easily skate over it. If we see that the essential things that sustain us are happening without needing us to do anything, might it be possible that we could trust what's happening? Trust it so deeply that we just want to know what's going on without placing an agenda on top of it that says how it should or should not be. Might we be willing to just open up to what it is that this body has to teach, to reveal to us? The Buddha once said that within this fathom-long body, this approximately six foot, I think that is, this fathom-long body, of course he didn't use the word fathom, but that was the first translation I encountered. Within this fathom-long body, all of the Dharma is revealed. All that we need to understand, we can learn right here. How fortunate we are to have a body. To be a place to wake up. And this body, it reveals all that we need to understand. This shared experience of sensitivity, of vulnerability. It shows us the connection that underpins it all. 
it shows us that in fact what we are is not separable from anything else. Just as when we allow ourselves to be touched by the tenderness and vulnerability of our lives and our experience, what we notice is that we become aware of each other's equally and in that we feel our togetherness. When we understand that it's not so much about me but about us, about this reality, this condition, this life of which we are all a part, then really to be in our body, to be in this life with an open heart, is to allow ourselves to be touched by the vastness of life, (coughs) the fullness and the beauty of all of this. So let's have a few moments quietly together to finish. So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, come to live more fully in contact and connection with the life of our bodies and hearts. And in the revelation of our relatedness, our connectedness to life, for our own welfare, and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.